Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me to discuss one of the greatest hours in Star Wars ever is Stephen Tullefield and Thomas Harper. And we're going to cover Shadow Warrior from Ahsoka Part 5. Thomas, what did you think of this episode? Uh, where do you start? It, it felt like... Uh a moment where the camera sort of zoomed out and you saw the whole picture. Like we've been playing with all these puzzle pieces for the last what 15 years. And, and now we sort of, we don't see the whole puzzle, but we see a good chunk of it. And it was just awesome. Uh, and seeing it in live action was just, I had uh, goosebumps the whole time. Steven, how about you? Yeah, it was amazing to see those um iconic battles from the clone wars and in um live action and ashley xine of course will always be kind of the young ahsoka to me but ariana greeblatt was pretty amazing (laughs) as the live action version um and that was really fun to see um she was great i i kind of hadn't put two and two together that she had been in 65 um with with adam driver um and then when someone had mentioned that to me, I was like, of course, she's amazing. So it was really good. I liked it. Yeah, I I was just awestruck by how it began. It's because we knew it was gonna we're gonna get world between worlds. And they don't feel the need to explain this is Force Goes Anakin, even though he's not glowing and in Jedi robes, we just go. And because we, we basically have Ahsoka's perspective of she doesn't know what the hell's going on. She's just there trying to go, what, what? What just happened? I lost a fight. Okay, giddy up. We're going to flash back. But she still is her, you know, 45-year-old self going through this final lesson with her master. And that is just so trippy and over the top with Anakin being, uh, you know, we get the Vader references and his comment, is that what this is about? Yeah, dude, we're going to have to talk about this because that's a big thing. Your war crimes, that genocide that you were a part of. It's hard to just like give you a mulligan for that. We, we want to talk about this. But what a ride. And then all the stuff with Hera and Jason and our X-Wing pilots, the the, the one unanswered question that kind of bothered me were the two downed X-Wings. Like, we don't see them blow up. Like, they're, they're descending into the atmosphere. It looks like they could eject. Do those pilots who go swimming to pull Ahsoka out of the drink, are they rescued? Or... Did they just put X-Wings in hover mode and jump on the ghost? I don't know. But did those other two survive? You know, what about the Rodian? What happened there? So questions within questions within questions. Yeah, that Rodian probably worked really hard to be able to pilot an X-Wing with those hands that just seem to go like this. <laughs> if you're like- listening to us. You know how Rodian hands work. Dude. Some sort of adaptive controls, perhaps. <laughs> it's like when you got flippers. Yeah, it's like how... How is this going to work? Like, what do we do here? 
So let's let's get into the legal analysis, which I think is a, all over the map. You know, there are a couple of big ones. And we should address the elephant in the room or the six-legged walker in the room with child soldiers. What do they mean that Ahsoka was a commander at what, 14? Leading troops into combat? Tom, you're our JAG officer. Help us. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, what this episode really brought into sharp focus was just how young Ahsoka was. The scene, at least the the main battle scene with the walkers and whatnot, I believe is a callback to or a flashback to the Battle of Teth. So if you go all the way back to the her very first appearance in the Clone Wars movie, it's like her first bit of action under Ahsoka. She's 14. And in the show, it just it's kind of hard to peg, you know, like relative age. You can be told a number, but what does that really look like? But she looks like a kid. And there was a fair amount of discourse online, like, oh, they, they got it wrong or the, the actress was too young. But I think they pegged it exactly right. Um, you know, it's uh, it was meant to send a message about exactly what she's been through uh, in a very visceral way under international law. So the, the, the world that we live in is very concerned with children fighting. Children fight all the time, unfortunately, in armed conflicts. And there's a, a fairly bright line rule that uh, children under the age of 15 cannot be recruited to fight and and children below that 15 year old mark cannot fight either that doesn't mean that they don't uh that they aren't recruited that they don't but that's the the cut line and uh the law has to establish lines seemingly arbitrary ones in all sorts of fashions and that's where they've drawn this one a child under IHL, so the law of war, is anyone under the age of 18. But they separate out that 15, 16, 17 category from the under 15 category and say uh, it, part of that's sort of a recognition when these rules were drafted that you do have many nations that are that, like the United States. They are running commercials. They are recruiting like the next generation of, of enlistees and, and officers and whatnot, it would complicate things if you couldn't do that sort of thing to, to say American high schoolers or, or college students. So it's under 15 is, is the cut line. And that, that if you're curious where that stems from, so the, it's sort of multifaceted. You've got the Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols, so additional protocol one and two, which have been around since the late 70s. Um, you also have uh, just sort of a, a patchwork of uh, laws that have sort of sprung up um, in in response often to to children fighting uh, in in different parts. So there's uh, the the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, things like that that have have come in to strengthen in certain aspects this sort of thing. The Jedi Order just sort of does its own thing. Um, and it's always been a curiosity to me, uh, not their decision to take you know, young ones away from their family, but that conscious decision to send them into battle at a very young age. Yeah, there's 
police officers can have a high school student on a ride along, but that doesn't include the SWAT team taking 14 year olds to go breach a door to take out, you know, drug dealers. Like we don't do that. There's a difference between a high school ROTC program where the kids are, you know, under 18 versus taking them into combat. Not only that, making them an officer in charge of troops. Like all of this is profoundly terrifying and raises uh, uh, a Ferris Doctrine issue because there, you know, the Ferris Doctrine says, and this is a highly abridged uh, you know, summary of it, but you military personnel and their families can't sue the government under the Federal Tort Claims Act for injuries that happen as an incident to their service. A 14-year-old in charge getting troopers killed is highly problematic because, now granted, these are clones, so it's not like they have family members that can start suing. But if they did, it's like, what do you mean a 14-year-old was in charge? No. Like, and, and, and one way around the Ferris Doctrine is right to Congress. Because nothing, you know, highlights the problem like a congressional hearing to go, you, hazing happened on an aircraft carrier and someone ended up with busted vertebrae? No. Like, we don't do that here. We can at least ruin the careers of the people who, you know, got people hurt. But this is a 14-year-old who was entrusted with command. Why was Anakin saying, hey, kid, why don't you do the battle plan? So, again, just bad <laughs> so yeah. and it thoughts? yeah it just struck me that um as you're talking about that that um i just well not just uh, i read the rise of the red red blade book by delilah dawson that came out this year and um it struck me in that book that they did kind of tie some of the fact that the jedi were getting so desperate during the clone wars for more jedi because there were so few of them to begin with and they were just being killed at these really high rates they hadn't been killed at before. So they were desperate for people to fill in the ranks to serve the Republic as peacekeepers. But then they wound up go plucking from their ranks younger and younger and younger and sort of cannibalizing the, the younger generations more quickly. And it led a lot of them to the dark side, actually, um, that because they were they were too young to to be in those positions. So it was just an interesting take on um, on. And it's sort of an interesting perspective that Ahsoka didn't wind up going to the dark side, that she was able to um, sort of have this um, reconciliation, um, you know, much later in life, of course, but that she was able to sever her life from the legacy that Anakin had told her that she was a part of, which had been, had culminated in all this death and destruction. So I just thought it was an interesting way of how um, children are so damaged by violence. Um, and of course, by wartime violence too, it's just a whole other level. She did leave the order. I mean, it had a, yeah. a profound uh, effect on her. And I think there's a reason that she, like her entire formative years were, 
in combat. I mean, there's the, like modern day military, even the U.S. that's been at, up until last year that was at war for 20 plus years. There's at least breaks between when you're deployed for, for her as it's depicted. It was constant. And you see the, the effects on a contemporary of hers in Barisofi, who not just sort of broke from the order, but really resorted to, to sort of violent means to um, address some of her some of her issues. So it, it there's there's a litany of reasons, and I, I think the law recognizes, as it does in other areas, that there are certain classes of people who are just profoundly more vulnerable to to injury, uh, whether it's mental or physical, and children are, are right there at the top of that pile. It's, it's why we have international law. It's why when uh, countries or militias start indoctrinating kids to be child soldiers that everyone goes time out, like this is, no, we, you don't get to kidnap all the boys in the town and convert them into soldiers. No, just as a as a species, we're against that. Uh, you know, it highlights if a war's going badly, the recruits can get younger, and again, that's a bad sign. The end of World War Two. You know, there were stories with the Hitler Youth being sent in, and it's just like those are little kids. Like it's like the war's lost. Like you're sending children to die for their Fuhrer and it's like screw you like it's surrender you're done don't don't send the kids to die uh for the Doctor Who fans out there there's one of the Tom Baker series it's like the Genesis of the Daleks or the Dawn of the Daleks I, I don't remember the title but it takes place on uh you know the Dalek homeworld when Davros is starting to make the first Daleks. And you have uh, mixes of technology. You see woven clothes versus like machine manufactured clothes, uh, uh, weapons that don't go together because, you know, the more advanced stuff is now old. And, you know, the surviving generations that are still at war don't have the technical skills uh, to to keep making what was made before. And there was a Capaldi episode that also touched on it, where it's you know it's a biplane dropping advanced bombs by hand because like they're down to kids, <laughs> like there, and you know it's like you have the twenty five year old general. It's like that's a bad sign. That means a lot of people are dead, and what's left, you know, are children and people who are not old enough to be in charge because they lack the experience. So, uh, quite the quite the issue <laughs> for for the Clone Wars. An indictment of the Jedi Order, too. Yeah, it's well, it just highlights Palpatine's plan to wear down the Jedi by overextending them and getting them to do things that they should not be doing like fighting a war uh, there's a difference between uh, war and nation building and peacekeeping and 
you know, Jedi are supposed to be the peacekeepers, to turn them into the army, like that's not what their function was. Anywho, why don't we get into Ahsoka's final lesson? Now, that's intentional affliction of emotional distress. So, Stephen, can you talk us talk us through some of these elements? Yeah, um, in IIED, as it's sort of affectionately referred to, um, is the um, is when someone has some sort of um, some sort of duty to the person to the person who's injured, and then they they behave in a way that is so outrageous and so um, hurtful that the the victim or the the plaintiff feels so bad that it amounts to a legal injury and so the the elements are that the conduct was outrageous that the defendant did it intentionally and it wasn't just sort of a mistake or something that they actually wanted to do the conduct um to cause the distress um that they did it knowing that there was knowing that it would cause the distress or with reckless disregard, they just didn't care that it would injure the plaintiff like that, that the plaintiff actually feels the distress and um, that the defendant was the substantial cause of that distress. So, um, but basically the idea is that, um, that when you generally, you can't sue because someone calls you a bad name and you feel bad about it. This is like a whole other level of intentional sort of mental injury that someone intentionally afflicts upon you. And so Anakin here taking Ahsoka in her child form and exposing her to sort of these really painful memories in a way that is um, really uh, meant to poke at her insecurities and her trauma um, could certainly be um, framed by her as intentional infliction of emotional distress. Although, query whether she actually experiences emotional distress, because afterwards she seems to be at real peace. And so while the experience itself would be kind of harrowing, she might, um, Anakin might have an argument to the jury that she can't establish the kind of damages, the kind of extreme emotional distress that would entitle her to recovery. Who has jurisdiction over the world between worlds? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> Universal, everywhere it's everywhere. everywhere. I mean... <laughs> the, the Republic has a long arm statute, maybe. <laughs> it's like, we'll take that injury going to pluck you right through that portal there yeah that that's a god that's a tough one <laughs> it's, it's just it's like oh boy where where do we even go An- uh, another way to look at it is that it's everywhere and every when so everywhere is jurisdiction it's like going after the tva so that it's a similar type analysis of what you're dealing with um yeah, it's it's out there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> which, the, but again, part of it is, I mean, the, it could just be pure battery because he comes at her with a lightsaber, you know, like this is kind of attempted murder. You're not above killing children, so I'm on my guard. You 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 have a red flag in your file, so. Uh, which again, I think is part of this, you know, the issue of Anakin goes from NVP, and I think that's from the Clone Wars, and that really wasn't shown in live action well in either Attack of the Clones or uh, um, the Sith. 
um, saying, excuse me, Revenge of the Sith, because it just, it didn't happen. Um, it was just a bummer. <laughs> like So this, he gets to be MVP Anakin and Vader. And he, man, great job. But that lesson is, is battery. <laughs> like there isn't a way around it. So. Yeah. The, as you two were talking about this, it, it kind of entered my mind, the comparison to a normal, like a real world training event. So say you were you know, training for martial arts or you know, judo or something like that. Uh, is there a line that can be crossed by your instructor? So pick your, your combat sport. She's certainly, this is done. I, I think Anakin says, line, it's time to finish your, your training, something along those lines. But I think even within uh, that sphere, you get some, some step over, partially because of the mental aspect of it. He's, he's subjecting her to uh, those painful memories. Um, but also, it does seem like he would kill her. <laughs> like, he's not... He's not holding back anything, and you see that it's sort of like bone chilling to see Anakin in sort of his fullest form, like at the height of his power, right before his fall and immediately after his fall, before he loses to Obi Wan. And so it's he's at his most dangerous in that uh, in that context. I think certainly in our world, you could see a scenario in which you you cross the line from instruction and training into criminal activities uh you know i didn't pay for these lessons kind of thing but um yeah sue is force ghost yeah it's again he's not glowing blue nor is he in jedi robes which steven and i talked about this last time what what are we dealing with here because the entire uh from a certain point of view uh return the jedi book addresses that now i haven't read that chapter yet i did get the book i'm not there yet but that was like the natural progression for him to be in traditional jedi ropes that's ahsoka never experienced him that way and he's also not mentored her as a ghost either so this is the first time they're interacting since uh was it um where they fought on that Sith home uh, home world that was where Kanan gets blinded. Uh, Malachor? Uh, Malachor. Malachor. Yeah. yeah. Memories. Memory. <laughs> it's, it's funny too because Obi-Wan, when he was mentoring Luke in the original trilogy and appeared as a Force ghost, it was much more like kind of co- coaching or counseling this this relationship was seemed much more intended to be like the balrog versus gandalf where he's like harrowing her and she's going to emerge from the experience a sort of transformed purified version of herself that's left behind all the baggage that was kind of holding her back um so it's it's an interesting kind of much more kind of violence experience much more sort of physical and and mentally distressing experience and what Luke went through. Although I guess learning that your father is the most evil man in the, in the universe is <laughs> probably pretty harrowing too. But yeah, I mean that that as well. But Kenobi never pulls Luke like out of Hoth 
into the world between worlds. So like what we have here is just different than anything we've seen before. It's also the second time Ahsoka has been saved in the world between worlds. So <laughs> does she have a coupon, you know, express pass. Frequent flyer. Yeah. It's just... We haven't we haven't seen the convoy yet. The bird that was kind of like in the world it's between true. worlds. I wonder if that's all... coming. Yeah, it's gotta be. Up. It's yeah. Floney's writing this. I would be shocked. There's gonna there has to be a live action Loth Wolf at some point. I mean, if we if we've had per gill the size of container ships, we're going to have <laughs> and some mountains, they're they're big. We're going to have more. <laughs> like it's just that I'm sure he will check every box in this story because that's it's felony which then brings us to disobeying orders so tom we're going to need your help with this but i find the command and control structure of the military of the new republic profoundly stupid a great way to get everybody killed and also will ignore problems uh until they're you know fatal but we will go after people who are trying to solve them. I mean, like it's it sends such a horrible message. But can you help us understand the duty to follow a lawful order, uh, even if it's stupid? Yeah, yeah. There's stupid orders is not a a defense that I'm aware of to the crime of disobeying orders. So this is a very uniquely military crime. Uh, it's it's found within the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so the military's criminal code. Uh, you also see it codified in the, the U.S. code. But it exists because in order to do the things that a military needs to do, there has to be what we call good order and discipline. Uh, if you disobey your boss or your superior in your normal job, Maybe you get yelled at, maybe you get fired, but really the stakes are, are different. Uh, you do that in the military and in the most extreme circumstances, you could get killed, you could get others killed, uh, things could be destroyed. Bad things happen. So built within this is a punitive reinforcement to the orders of, of superiors. And it's not just officers, generals, and majors and commanders, it, uh, it's a uh, an order that's issued by a superior, right? So the, the components of the crime are that there's an order that exists. It's got to be a lawful one. You've got to be aware of the order. There's no presumption that uh, you're just aware of everything that a, a commander thinks or that your superior thinks, but you've got to be aware of the order. Uh, it's got to be direct. So there's got to be some specificity to it to do or not do something. Um, and uh, you've got to have deliberately disobeyed it. And there's a presumption baked within uh, sort of our, our structure that orders are lawful. That's your starting point. And you can imagine why that's the case, because if that didn't exist, you would kind of question every single order that you got. Like, well, how do I analyze this? Is this lawful? Is it not? So it's... Um, it's sort of that I know it when I see it standard. Uh, but basically, a, an unlawful order would be anything that uh, is requiring you to do something illegal. So 
go shoot those civilians or execute these prisoners or go, I'm ordering you to go steal me a TV from Walmart, right? Those would be illegal orders. But um, that's got to be, that, that's on the defendant to, to establish and challenge. So that's your starting point. And that deliberateness can be demonstrated in quite a few ways. And so here, uh, I think Hera is, Hera can't effectively shield the squadron as well. I, I appreciated her sort of magnanimous gesture that she's going to be the umbrella upon which this um, crap storm hails down upon. But at the end of the day, each echelon has uh, that, that receives an order has a duty to follow it. You don't get to say, well, my immediate superior disobeyed. Therefore, I was just following her orders. Um, this would be a good example where Hera is getting a lawful order, i.e. stand down. She can't then issue an order to do the opposite. That would be an illegal order, right? So in reality, Carson Teva and his squadron mates actually have a duty to not follow her under the circumstances you can see how this pencil gets twisted pretty quickly um but under the circumstances this is uh, i think a really significant event and and one that really puts all of their careers in jeopardy because this isn't just some order from a lieutenant right this is coming from the top down from mamma um i don't know that she styles herself commander-in-chief but but from that very uh tipping point or the the tip of the spear of the new Republic leadership. I mean, if I were to disobey a direct order from the president of the United States, that would be a problem. Uh, Hera is in the same boat here. So I think she's got some real issues. But what if you're friends with president Biden? Feel like BFF? Like <laughs> exactly. Like Hera and, and Mon Mothma are tight. They have history. I mean, if Joe called you and said, Hey, Tom, you can't do that. First off, cool, good on you. Uh, I'm sure you could talk it through. But it, that is a, an interesting question, though, because I think it would go to the question of whether you understood it to be an order. And how you interact with someone is weighs pretty heavily on that. I, I've thought about that quite a bit where, you know, in my service, I'm... Uh, you know, really tight with paralegals that we work with closely. You get nested in on a trial or something like that. You're working in the trenches together. And that line starts to blur, not professionally, like there's still that, that dividing line. Uh, but I sometimes wonder, is this, and what I, is what I'm saying being perceived as an order to do this? And so you could see a scenario in which Harris says, well, I, you know, we were just talking as longtime friends. I didn't understand what you mean, uh, wh what you were saying to be in order. But this has played out to the point where I think that defense is gone for Hera. <laughs> she is very clear. They've sent a squadron to, to intercept or a, a, a small subset of a fleet to intercept her. Uh, the writing is clearly on the wall. Yeah, Three capital ships to go after a general <laughs> trying to stop a war criminal from coming back like highlights how messed up and wrong their priorities are just i mean it's infuriating with i'll hold the dumb stick and be in charge of the new republic it's, it's just 
profoundly frustrating. Um, again, it's like the mayor from Jaws. I'm going to wait for the problem to swim up and bite me in the ass. That is the new Republic Senate. Or, you know, giant wave of energy to take out housing and crime. So, uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> She's in trouble, <laughs> so, uh, which then gets us to, let's go rescue Hera, you know, and is there a duty to rescue Hera? Now, the, the law on the duty to rescue is there's no duty. Like, if you see someone drowning, you don't have to go find, go rescue them. Makes you a crappy person, but you, you have no legal obligation. And that kind of goes back to the old hue and cry laws the of of the old world of someone goes stop thief and others would have to then go chase the thief we don't have that we don't have anything like that Stephen, what are your thoughts with you know is there a special relationship some connection like is jason carrying lightsabers you know a reason to go send out three X-Wings and mom to go try to find Ahsoka. Yeah. I mean, like you said, legally, no. Um, I think that because you can, you can see someone get hurt and just keep walking. Um, that's there. There's no duty, um, no legal duty, moral one, arguably, but no legal duty to like, they can't sue you for not stopping and helping um, the people who are injured. But it's interesting because um in fact, if you did help at common law, you were then liable for any injuries that you caused while helping. So that was sort of, in fact, our law for a really long time had this baked in counter incentive to prevent people from helping because people might have didn't want to be liable for any injuries or making things worse that they um, might inadvertently cause. Now we have a lot of good Samaritan laws that shield people from liability if they try to do the right thing. But for whatever reason, um, the, the injured person remains injured or gets worse. But um, yeah, and I when it's it, it's interesting that this duty to rescue Ahsoka is, is occurring, that sort of um, conflict between Carson and Hera and sort of the skepticism of Jason's perception of the situation is happening while Ahsoka is reflecting on her own duty to the clones and her obligations to keep them safe and to protect them versus putting them in harm's way as a general in a battle. And I thought it was an interesting kind of juxtaposition of those reflections on duty and what you have to do to take care of people around you. Um, of course, in war, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas, but, uh, you know, as you say, if it's a lawful order, it's sort of assumed that soldiers are going to get hurt. That's kind of one of the reasons why they're there. And they've assumed that risk. Another reason why children can't be soldiers because they don't appreciate risks like adults can. But um, but she still wants to protect them and wants to be do right by them, which is interesting um, how that's reflected in Jason and Hera's persisting in their search for her beyond what Carson thinks is prudent. Um, I thought it was a really neat way of telling that story. And what's uh what's maybe counterintuitive uh, on the military side of things is that there is no duty to rescue that's imbued by military service right so military members don't have some special duty to rescue 
civilians. Um, if I'm driving down the, the road, I don't carry a, uh, an additional bird, legal burden by virtue of my service. And likewise, there's no legal duty to, to, uh, f- for the military to rescue its own. Now, is that the practice of things? No, absolutely not. Heaven and earth get moved if a soldier goes missing, uh, is feared captured, that sort of thing. So, but that's not based on a legal duty that would be backed up by some sort of liability, criminal or otherwise. And that kind of runs counter. I tell people that a lot and they're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> the military doesn't have to rescue its own. Like, we really don't need a, like a punitive law to like, make sure that that happens <laughs> it's good for morale and unit cohesion that it's like don't worry we will come get you because i want you to come get me if i'm out in the jungle or desert or drifting on uh you know a plank hoping someone saves me so yeah like we'll go get you because that's gonna that's the deal uh but it's also important to go like we don't have that written down as a law. It's it's just the policy <laughs> of of what we do. Um, yeah, which then brings us to oh, two two big things. Um, it's a little revisiting of of the lawful orders. Carson, you know, is stalling while Ahsoka and Hera are flirting with what we would consider the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Like you, you don't go out and pet the whale. You don't swim with Shamu. You know, you, you don't hold on to the dolphin and you know, you guys go skipping through the water together. Cool, yes, not legal. <laughs> like you're not supposed to ride the dolphin. Same could be said for Ahsoka doesn't touch the whale but she's using the force to communicate with the whale. And then the whale opens its mouth and they take the ship in for a ride. Uh, they're... Star Wars. <laughs> so weird and dumb. I love it. It's like, I'm on, I'm like, look, we got the space slug with the Falcon. We know ships can fit in a big, big spacey creature. And I'm down with it. But like in our laws, you don't ride whales. Now, whales and dolphins have been used by the military for go out and find the bomb. And there's rumors that uh, Russia has has used uh, marine animals um, to carry out operations as well, which is, again, weird. But um, with those exceptions, and um, Tom, do you know if the military is still doing anything with marine mammals it's classified <laughs> no i'm kidding <laughs> actually i'm sure that the navy is doing something or other interestingly you mentioned russia there's uh, evidence that down in sevastopol so their their port down in crimea that they had dolphin pens down there and uh that they were being used for some purpose probably detection or something like that early warning um, not that that has done them any good. <laughs> I, I don't mean, think the Ukrainians have targeted the the dolphins that I know of, but bigger fish to fry, pun intended. Yeah, they're they're really good at taking out uh, Russian warships. So 
um, it has to be loud for the for the dolphin under the water to go like, oh no, biggie boom. Yeah, it was when I was looking at the Marine Mammal Protection Act a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was surprised to sort of see that there's a provision in there for um, the the pro the prohibition of harassing marine mammals. You can get a um, a waiver of that for military activities. Um, so, for example, if you're testing sonar or something in San Diego, they they might apply to um, the environmental agencies for some sort of exemption from the prohibitions of the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So it conceivably, Ahsoka could have contacted the environmental agencies of the New Republic, said, hey, we want to use these endangered species for this tangentially military activity. Would that be okay? But it takes a long time, obviously, for those permits to be issued and not something that's done on your emergency basis like this. Because if you know the emergency's coming, like it's like you, know, you have time for the paperwork it's it lessens the emergency uh, if you if you're prepared for it that said yeah that was a great way to end uh but carson stalling goes to the lawful order issue and when they see the pergild headed towards the fleet and they're like evasive maneuvers they're dodging whales of all kinds of sizes from x-wing size to bigger than the capital ships. I love that it's a literal pod. They just they've uh, they've leaned completely into the uh, the whale comparison, which means there's whale-like creatures at least on some Star Warsy planet, so they can use the term whale in a ter- as a way that we all understand. Pergil calves. Yeah. <laughs> There's still like there's still like a part of me that from when I watched the original Battlestar Galactica in the seventies or eighties and 70, yeah and sort of at the end they wound up on Earth and they had like the motorcycles that flew and stuff. I've, there's a part of me that's like, are they going to fly to another galaxy and it's going to be Earth <laughs> and we'll have like Ahsoka hanging out and they'll see like the actual whales and there'll be like this whole Star Trek. Um, the way up journey home situation i yeah that entire other galaxy thing could be fraught with with poor storytelling or brilliant so like again wild cards the uh first off Battlestar galactica prepared on my fourth birthday so fifth birthday was star blazers so i yeah I had a lucky childhood. Yeah. Yep. With two fantastic sci-fi shows. Like, yeah, we that? just we just realized that yesterday was the premiere uh had was the US premiere of Battle of the Planets um 40 oh. years ago. Something is that is that right? 40, 40 years ago? Maybe 45? I mean something like that. Yeah, that, it must have been closer to 45, I guess. But yeah. Battle of the Planet, I've only seen that like once in childhood and that, mm. that's still out there um it's good I, I i need to revisit it uh i do strongly recommend the reboot of star blazers so it's 21.99 and 22.02 brilliantly done better stories than the original and they're live action too right there's a there's a, at least one live action version right and that's horrible i can say i watched that the revisionist history of 
the Yamato set sail in 1945 for peace, I gave the TV screen the middle finger at that point because it was just, no, no, you don't get to whitewash Imperial Japan butchering people. No. The animes, the especially the reboot, do address the, the horrors of war and the... Um, you know, the, the lead character is always horrified to use the wave motion gun uh, as a because it's a giant WMD that can take out a planet. Um, and he doesn't like having to do that. So, uh, but the, yeah, the, the, there's none of those qualms with the live action. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Anywho, uh, we're just in a lucky time with great content. I mean, the fact that this episode exists and how good it was uh, just wonderful <laughs> and, and as when we finish up this recording there's a new episode waiting that's uh, yeah, what a time yeah we're damn lucky i mean just, if you had said this 20 years ago it's like yeah right sure uh Yuzhan Vong incoming. <laughs> the other galaxy. Yeah, it's... Oh, oh no. Uh, let's see what they do. You know, with... You know, if, if Thrawn and company's been exiled for 10 years, what are they like now? You know, again, have they just been doing drills? Like, have they been building up wonder weapons? Uh, or did guys desert? Because that that could be a thing. It's like we're far away. We're not going back. They either would have really strong unit cohesion, or it'd be like going that way. <laughs> going to go make a home. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure that's will be an interesting question uh, to have answered. So, so closing thoughts, uh, Stephen. Anything? No, I'm just I'm really excited to see what's coming next. We only have what three episodes left, um. So yeah, don't say that. Yeah, but then then apparently, as long as the um, uh, the Dave Filoni film doesn't follow the um, path of so many uh, announced films before it, that I, and I just by the way, I just saw a headline that Taika Waititi's film is apparently no longer happening. I I don't believe any of those things. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's like the guys from the rumor mill that the Lando series is now going to be a movie. Unless it's on StarWars.com, it's not real. And the way those articles are written is just clickbait. So let's just stay the course. Wait for the strikes to be over. So the people who make these shows that we like are getting paid what they deserve. Uh, and, And the actors and everyone are getting the residuals they deserve. Because uh, that's a big problem with streaming. Thomas, any final thoughts? No, I uh, had better see the Chimera, so Thrawn's flagship, in uh, real life, uh, or as close to it as I can get on the other side of the TV by the end of this season. Or, well, there's no or. I, I won't do anything, but <laughs> I'll be perfectly happy with the season we had. But I'll be a little bit sad because I love my capital ships. Yeah, they can't just do it the tease. And I know you gotta have. 
and show it from underneath so that we can see the artwork, please. And, you know, I, I'm okay if they go flatten a New Republic City or two. Just to prove the point, like, maybe you guys shouldn't ignore problems. You know, the senators need to realize, oh, oh, no. No, we need to deploy the fleet and actually stop this. Um, on the flip side, it's going to, could be the running theme through Mando season four and whatever other shows are in development. So stay tuned. And everyone, thanks for tuning in wherever you are. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky.